welcome to Friend Circle. This is Angelus. We're now in Season 4, Episode 48 of this podcast. And this time we'll be discussing another interesting topic about predictive analytics. For today's podcast episode, we have invited Mr. Yap Bink, a highly experienced predictive analytics professional and also the executive consultant of Xeno Analytics based from Zees, the Netherlands. As he explains to us his valuable insights on predictive analytics as well as its significant relevance to our digital economy. So let's get started. Thank you for listening to Fin Circle and welcome to our podcast. Indications so far suggest that organizations are struggling to oversee implementation projects for platforms that allow data analysis, even to a minor degree. Deloitte found that just 27% of businesses in 2020 consider their work environment to be data-driven, with 73% citing big data management as an ongoing challenge for their operations, suggesting a lack of any overwhelming progress over the last two years. While the circumstances of 2023 led many businesses to increase their digital efforts. Much of this was directed towards communication tools, cybersecurity and IT management, rather than a comprehensive new look at how they can utilize their data. What's even more interesting is that while data analytics adoption remains a big hurdle, for many, the desire for business leaders and decision makers to implement it is higher than ever. 
But the question is, why? If the benefits are so great, then why are organizations, time and again, showing a reluctance to adopt business intelligence and analysis systems? It's actually not a simple answer, as there are several factors. One of the primary issues is that many businesses are still operating today with legacy solutions for different departments and processes. Sales and marketing, for instance, are still using the same CRM they've always used. The warehouse or data warehouse is still operating with the same on-premises ERP solution. And other departments are not integrating their applications or apps into an enterprise-wide cloud ERP. But let's take a closer look to the possible barriers to the adoption of data-driven technologies that encourages more a forward-looking and rational approach to decision-making. Number one, it's really expensive. This one falls at the first hurdle because in fact, the predictive analytics market is very mature and completely wide open. You can pay through the nose for a fancy decision tree or you can even download an entire data mining package for free. Also, compared to the cost of a lot of other IT implementations, the cost of predictive analytics is relatively low. Just look at how much money was being spent during the days of the rush to data warehouse, the early dot-coms, the CRM fever, or even now, we do have this what we call NoSQL solutions and Hadoop-like platforms. Number two, we don't have the right data for that sort of thing. This is a common enough belief that usually dwindles to a painfully thin excuse on closer examination. If advanced analytics relied on oodles of clean, consolidated data from multiple sources stored in pristine warehouses, you wouldn't even be mentioning this. Number three, we don't know how to use this stuff. I believe this is a fair and reasonable statement. A lack of experience and knowledge of successful predictive analytics application is obviously a legitimate barrier, although hardly an insurmountable one. Sadly, a quick glance at the curricula of some of the most sought-after MBA courses, for instance, available globally, reveals that there are lack of modules with an analytics focus. Number four, the last but not the least, we don't need it yet. Finally, we arrive at a simple and important truth. However much predictive analytics might benefit an organization, most can function reasonably well without it. At least, until their competitors start driving optimized decisions based on deep analytics. But how are we going to look at it in the future? As with most aspects of digital transformation, 
The outlook of data analysis appears to demonstrate that adoption is heading in one direction and it's going up. Business leaders all the way up to the C-suite are more inclined than ever to invest in analytics. McKinsey found that 70% of business leaders agree that analytics has changed their respective industries in at least a moderate way. As more and more businesses see the advantage of data analytics adoption, the number of these making implementation to achieve analytical maturity will increase over time. This is even more the case when you consider that primary concerns, namely that implementations are costly and time-consuming, are being addressed by modern vendors. Consider, for example, that the median implementation time for a BI and analytics platform is about four months, a lot shorter than what many might imagine. And uh, combine that with the efficiency and competitive benefits that can be achieved through these solutions, and it's almost certain that data analytics platforms will be the norm rather than the exception. This is a mixture of reluctance to change established procedures, perceived costs, and perceived time for implementation. In 2021, a cloud-based analytics platforms and their comparatively simple integration with ERPs and existing legacy systems means it's actually a lot easier for companies to invest in analytics than they might have imagined. That's why you should think about what area of their business can benefit the most from data analytics and starting their journey with small impl implementations for certain departments or processes before scaling up to the entire business. So if the invention is the matter of the necessity, what is the matter of enterprise? I wonder if it's courage. As they say, let's seize the moment. And I firmly believe that this is now the right time an opportunity to make things happen. In today's podcast episode, we have invited Mr. Yap Bink, a seasoned predictive analytics professional and an executive consultant at Sino Analytics from Zees, the Netherlands. It's an honor and privilege to have you, Yap, and welcome to FinCircle. Thank you, uh, Edgar. It's, it's great to be here. Let's probably start by describing on what is predictive analytics and its value proposition to our digital economy. Um, I always like to kind of grab back to the definition that we made at SPSS uh, for predictive analytics uh, that was later also adopted by Gardner. It's the, the, the process that connects uh, data to reliable conclusions uh, uh, and, and actions. So it's basically uh, a process and a set of techniques uh, that will help you make uh, data-driven decisions uh, reliably. Uh, and it's, 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 it's kind of a way to incorporate the way that humans make decisions synthetically into, into business processes, right? And into and into automated processes, um, but not just automated. Also, in, in, in just business decision making processes. As, as humans, 
when we make a decision, we, we, we kind of build up predictions and based on those predictions, we take our actions, right? So in, in the past, right, uh, when we hear the sound in the woods, we made a prediction, how likely is it that that is a predator? If it's a predator, we run. If it's not, we probably think it's some, something else. So, uh, and even today, right, when we, uh, when we look, but, but when we make a decision in the stock market, uh, based on the quarterly report of a company, right? It's not actually the numbers that are in the quarterly report that we're interested in, but we use that as information, as input to predict what the investors on the market are going to do with the stock. Are they going to buy and sell? Is the price going up or down? And um, uh, and then uh, uh, we make a decision. So we kind of build an expectation of what is going to happen and we act according to that expectation. And that is what predictive analytics also does, but using more advanced analysis techniques, but it could also be less advanced analysis techniques. It's, it's a whole process. So what we're, what we're doing actually with predictive analytics is I like to kind of use the, um, the OODA loop from John Boyd to describe the uh, decision-making process of, of people, right? We, we collect our data, we, we see what's happening, we get information from outside, we interact from, with the environment and get information that way. We then, uh, so we, we, we observe what's happening, then we orient uh, on what we see, right? We, we discover patterns, we, we, we try to understand what's happening. And then based on that, we build up a, a, an expectation or a hypothesis or, or, or uh, something else. And, and then we take an action or we test whether we are correct or not. And that action or then has a result and that feeds back again into our into our uh, into, into our new observation cycle. And that is the same with predictive analytics. We try to kind of synthetically collect all kinds of information from all kinds of sources. We try to understand the data and, and manipulate the data. We try to identify patterns using techniques and based on those techniques, we can suggest a, a decision or we can suggest a possible future uh, result that you can then take an action on and then you get that into a loop into a whole system um and it's 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 an old way of 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 it, it, it the whole history of predictive analytics started in in the scientific revolution right in the 16th and 17th century when people started to look at data and started to wor work more according to a scientific method to actually build the decisions of data uh and and that has evolved over time so what, where it started in the 16th and 17th century was was uh, uh, more more basic methods and people just basically building uh, methods. But then it, it it started to evolve through developments in statistics, uh, through developments in, um, uh, in 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 predictive modeling uh, in general. Then in, in later we we came with the machine learning uh, types of, uh, of of algorithms that were detecting patterns and trying to make predictions um so it's 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 really an old thing and and the value to the digital economy it has already proven right the uh, and actually before that it's not just a digital economy it's 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 all already before companies have been using predictive analytics in all kinds of forms um uh, 
for 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 decades, and it started to kind of boom a bit in in the nineteen nineties after data warehousing it came up, and then in in the two thousands with the internet uh, coming up, it, it's it's being incorporated in all kinds of of processes. It's being incorporated in uh, in recommendation engines. It's been incorporated in predictive maintenance, right? Predicting. Uh, when a a, a, a a system or a, a machine or whatever needs maintenance so that you can actually do the maintenance before it breaks down. It's been incorporated in uh, direct marketing, in optimizing um, uh, uh, ad placement, in, 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 in all kinds of, all kinds of, in, in, in risk predictions, right? Uh, the, the likelihood of identifying fraud. So it, it brings basically a way to manage massive amounts of transactions efficiently in an automated process. Uh, so, so the, the value is is, is basically it, it brings a synthetic human inside an automated process. I do not call it AI because I don't believe in artificial intelligence because I don't know what intelligence is, and even neuroscientists don't know what what intelligence is. I call it synthetic human decision making. I understand, Yab, that uh, you've worked with various multinational companies and organizations and have heavily engaged with predictive analytics in particular. Hence, what are your relevant takeaways from these remarkable experiences? Most important part is that it is a business activity. So you need involvement and you need the... Uh, uh, a connection between people that understand the business, the business processes, the business goals, the business objectives. Um, uh, you need the people that uh, understand the data. So you need the data experience. You need to understand how the data is being generated. And you need to uh, have the people that understand uh, the analytics and building the analytics. You need you need all of those together, and then you need the technical people that can help actually deploy the models into the operation into the processes. But then you also have different types of levels of of models that you may want to use. Right? You have uh, you might have a predictive analytics model that you use for strategic purposes that you use to kind of try to identify what are the patterns and trends over time. Uh, the obvious one there is, for example, a a, a long-term economic forecast, right? Uh, that you may want to have, or or the development of of some some other things on a on a strategic level, which are more for long-term decision making. You may have tactical models, right, where you use predictive models to do a root cause analysis to see what actually has caused a problem, so that you can change it, or you can can look at okay, I use a predictive model to see whether there are bottlenecks in my operation, in my processes, in my organization, so that I may want to restructure my organization or my processes. And then you have more on the operational level, and then actually on the process level, and on the execution level, you have whole kinds of different types of problems where you need to look at okay, how am I actually what is my goal? What is my objective? What is my goal? What level am I at? And how am I actually going to deploy uh, the results into my organization? Um, and 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 that and so it's 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 not just building a model and having a, a very smart uh, uh, machine learning specialist or statistics specialist building a model. No, 
it's an effort that involves everything. And because it is that complicated, you need to be careful that you're not uh, trying to boil the ocean, right? You start, you, you, you build it incrementally, similar to how we as people uh, start our, our, our journey into a new field when we start learning. We're not experts straight away. We start building up our, our expertise and you learn from it. And the other thing is that you, you build a model uh, and based on that, you take a decision. And that decision usually is aimed to either strengthen the result of the model. So you see that somebody has a high likelihood of buying something. So you offer it to him to actually increase the possibility, probability that he or she buys it. Or you try to prevent something from happening, right? If you predict that somebody is going to cancel their, their insurance, you're trying to make them an offer that they don't cancel it. So you actually change the reality that your model was built in. So your model <clears throat> needs a process to actually look at, okay, is it still valid? Hasn't it degraded? Do I need to need to rebuild it, refresh it, whatever? So there's a whole organizational part around it that you, that you need to do. Um, and the last part is that you need to be aware that um, uh, the data that you have are already biased. Um, so uh, if if I have a, uh, um, I, I, I used to work for Don and Bradstreet, do, did a lot of work in, in business to business marketing, right, uh, with, my, with my team. And we had this enormous database with all companies in the world and in specific markets. And then the customer had a, a database with customers. And then if we were going to build a more, uh, uh, a model uh, that that would kind of try to select new new possible customers from our database for this customer, uh, based on their, their customer database, we would build a model that, that almost exactly replicated their marketing and sales strategy of the past, because th that was the selection that they've already made to approach those customers and get them in as customers. They're, they're not a random set of customers. So you need to know that there's already a bias in 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 the data that you make. We also you also need to be aware that you have bias built into how we measure things, right? Um, for example, if in 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 predictive maintenance, in a lot of cases, the temperature of the location where a machine is, for example, is 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 of great importance, and we measure temperatures at a certain interval, right? We can but temperature is a, is an analog measurement, but we measure it in a in a discrete method. We measure it every second or maybe every half second. Um, but therefore, we might actually miss. Uh, for example, if we measure it every second, right, we might miss spikes that happen every half second because there might be a spike for just a millisecond, uh, but we don't measure it because it is not within what we're measuring. So we could basically shorten the time period a bit, but we, we, we might never actually capture everything because we do not measure analog measurements. We change analog measurements into discrete measurements. Um, and the other thing is that we usually choose um, to bring in a structure in how we measure. We never start our measurement of temperature in a random moment. We started at Zero, at zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds in the morning, right? 
because that kind of conforms with our human understanding of time. We will never start it randomly somewhere between uh, uh, zero, zero hours, uh, zero minutes and zero hours, five minutes, because we want to kind of have that structure because we need that for all kinds of other things. So there's been all kinds of changes have been made in uh, already in generating the data. So it is really getting together with the the the, the analytic people, the uh, business people, the data people, the technical people, uh, and and then build a uh, uh, an infrastructure, a process, an organization that can actually generate the value. That's a very good point, uh, yeah. From your perspective, how are we handling biases in managing data and algorithms? The short answer is, at the moment, very badly, but all the attention to it uh, shows that there uh, might be some improvements there. The long answer is more complicated because um, uh, the fact that we have a lot of bias in our data and therefore in our, in our algorithms, uh, and we might actually have bias in our algorithms no matter what the data because of the way uh, the data is, is selected while there's no bias in the data, um, is caused because we had a lot of bias in our decision-making in the past, right? What we find is a reflection of uh, the biases in the past. So the question is not necessarily what do we do with bias in our uh, data and algorithms, but what do we do with bias in our decision-making uh, overall, whether we use an algorithm or not. And, and one of the, the good parts is of, 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 of kind of this coming forward is that it now has global attention. It's a widely discussed subject, both by business people and by uh, uh, by people in the in, in in basically what is now called the AI field, although I would really call it the advanced analytics field or the or the, the decision making the, the decision science field. Um, uh, that we need to consider the ethics of our decision making. Um, one of the dangers of that discussion is now that it is being kind of force fed and led. Uh, by big tech and especially by companies that benefit and, and, and stakeholders like big big tech, big money, big consulting, companies that benefit that, that stand to benefit from kind of steering the whole discussion discussion into a certain area where where they would go. Right. One of the things that they do is they scare everybody with kind of these these futuristic uh, dystopias with uh, AI run amok, right? AI doesn't develop itself. So if that is a risk, then stop developing in that direction. Right? That's that's one of the things that they could choose. Why why don't they choose that? No, they want to kind of have regulations so that they can run amok, uh, but are legally protected. So the whole decision about uh, what are the boundaries of uh, 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 bias and, and how we can use these types of, of analytic techniques and, uh, and processes, etc., should be decided not by big tech or anybody else, but it should go through kind of normal societal processes that decide that. And that might also mean um, 
that you might have different uh, frameworks that you have to work within in different cultures, right? There's different values and different things in different cultures. Clear, clearly shown, for example, by the results, there was this, I'm not sure if it's still up and running for, for, for self-driving cars, right? There was this, uh, this website where they tried to emulate the trolley problem uh, to, to kind of, okay, how can a, a driving car make an ethical decision? And it turned out there's big differences across the uh, uh, across the globe in in where the where the, where where, where um, uh, on, on on how people value, for example, the lives of elderly versus animals versus uh, versus young young people, etc. Uh, so there, there's the and that and that is why it's important to uh, to not have it uh, decided by big tech or, or, or big money, but by the local societies, because it needs to fit within the culture of that, that, that society, that region, uh, because we do have different, different values. We do put different emphasis on, on different things. So, um, <clears throat> the, the fact that that discussion is going on is, is really good. One of the things that I'm, uh, uh, I'm also more interested in is, is okay if you have a model and you find that your data is biased and therefore your model is biased what do you do do you change your original routine that was original already biased or do you just forget the model and keep being biased without the routine so that you don't have to be accountable for it that is also something that might happen is that basically oh we've been discriminating for 100 years let's keep doing it but let's not <clears throat> let's not show people the results of the model uh that we found that we were discriminating anyway right that has happened before like look look at what happened with uh, with oil with with, with the tobacco, uh, tobacco industry around lung cancer and with the oil industry around climate change so uh, hiding hiding results is a is a, a known tactic to uh, not be inconvenienced by uh, by all kinds of other problems. One of the greatest challenges of the next era, yeah, will be balancing protection of uh, intellectual property in both data and algorithms. What do you think are the things we need to do to make this happen? That is a very difficult problem. Um, so it's it's not just intellectual property, right? It's it, it is it is uh, it is also about the ownership of the data. Um, so in in Europe, of course, we we have the GDPR, in in the it was in the EU, which is already a very um, good way of protecting individuals and the rights of individuals on the, on their data. Um, which has also kind of led to um, some serious uh, some some serious fines for for big businesses when they didn't comply with uh, with that. Um, but it, apparently, it's not solving it yet, right? Uh, so it's not just regulations, but I do think that there need to be more uh, strict regulations uh, uh, around who owns the data um the other thing is okay but who owns the 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 content now there's there's copyright law there um uh, uh, 
and but it is also kind of okay but what are they using that data for right when um when we write a text right S suppose we were to write a play or a um a book right a fantasy book we will definitely be influenced by all the books that we have read uh so we will have read um the Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars. Uh, we, 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 we may have read um, loads of other fantasy books and now we're writing a fantasy books. And we will have this, uh, this influence from the books that we've read. So are we then infringing on their copyright? No, right? Because we're, that is normal for, for a human, how we create text. Now, that is because we create text but um, the whole hype around, uh, for example, ChatGPT and uh, and Bart and and all the other large language models uh, is 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 rightly that they are not creating text, right? They are not the the large general intelligence that the the, the industry wants people to hype up for because they want to distract from the the direct dangers to the the kind of dystopian future that I already mentioned. Chat GPT and, and BART and all those models are um, word predictors. They basically are a predictive model that predicts what is the best likely word, next word in the sentence. They do not build a text, they build a sentence word by word. And then they, you have a lot of sentences and they can't, re they don't really evaluate that, uh, that, uh, th that whole text. So that's where the hallucinations come from, right? They might kind of predict a word that is very likely to come next in this sentence, which is completely wrong. But since they're not involved with the sentence, but only with the prediction of the word, they go wrong. And it's built into the way that they're, they are uh, built. They are also um, very selective in, uh, in, in, in the languages that they use. So um, I think that what those models are doing is not making something new. They're just building sentences based on, of words. Uh, and therefore, what they're doing is using uh, the text that people have created um, uh, with, their, with their mind, where they have the whole text and the whole idea in mind and where they kind of have the whole um, a theory of mind of the people that are, are are the characters that are in there and things like that. That is not what a large language model is doing. It doesn't understand what it's producing. It just produces it, right? So I think that we need to um, be be and probably it needs a change in in, in copyright law across the world in, in in IPR. Then the other thing is the IPR of the models itself. Right. If you build a model, how much protection do I need versus how much transparency do I need? Uh, do I need to give under European law? Right. Um, there are, and, and, and especially also the new AI Act that is coming, there will be certain requirements for transparency and, and, uh, uh, in, into the models. And that is, uh, kind of, on a war footing with uh, intellectual property right and 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 for for a for a company um so how much 
transparency should a a, a company give versus uh, 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 how much can they protect for their for their unique unique selling points? Now, one of the things there is an, an, is that um, a lot of those models, if they're in the same area, they will all be the same, more or less, right? Um, because uh, most companies are in love with best practices, so they try to find people that have built the same models before. Or that have, uh, uh, or or they try to look at the same. Uh, what are my competitors? What kind of models are they building? And therefore, we will build the same models. So we will get uh, credit models from different banks, and they will come to almost the same conclusion. Although there will be some variations because there might be different data being used to train uh, to, uh, the model to build the model. But overall, um, there won't be that much difference between them because they're all built according to the same principles on similar types of data, although the kind of the parameter values will change a bit. So I don't feel that's it, but, but uh, it does means that we need to figure out a way that we can protect the, the companies that have built the models, but also protect, protect the end users of the model, the people. Uh, and that in, in, in the, um, uh, in the uh, EU AI Act, uh, they're trying to uh, to do that by uh, 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 by installing a um, uh, an oversight authority with audits and review, so that they they can look into it and that they ca can kind of give a, a seal of approval of the data. Um, uh, they, they they say okay, there needs to be an explanation to the to the people on on how this works. It doesn't need to go into detail, but there needs to be transparency to the people on how you reach that decision. Uh, and, and part of that is already in the GDPR, by the way. So that is not new. That there's there's a um, uh, there's an interesting court case going on at the moment at the European Court for uh, Human Rights on 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 a credit scoring uh, uh, model that might kind of change. Uh, uh, change a lot. I'll, I'll, I won't go into the differences, but basically what they're saying is that the the company providing the credit scoring model, since it's so important in the decision uh, made by the bank on a, on a credit, this this credit scoring model uh, company uh, is responsible for explaining to everybody how it's going to be, how they make their decisions, how they get to their scores. So basically, they need to open up their uh, their, their black box, their, their their kind of their protected black box, which contains their, their business IP, IPR, because they uh, because of the, the the different laws. So that that is going to be an interesting case. But the um, um, uh, yeah, the, the 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 big key there is that we will need some regulations. We will need to. Uh, get a uh, more transparency of the companies using uh, predictive analytics and, and models or, or uh, uh, and and we need to um, I think we need to also from a, a a a consumer and society perspective we need to put more pressures on uh, on on businesses uh, for uh, more ethical and moral decision making and and running their business right the and, and and that might involve saying okay 
maybe we should forbid short time um, short time gains in share price to influence the, um, uh, the, the the financial compensation of the of, of the board and the CEO. Um, that could be something, right? One of the things it, it, it's really kind of okay. What is motivating people to do that? And the, and and again, it is the decision. There is always a decision to be made for by by management of a company. Okay, we cannot solve this with technology. Maybe we should involve more people in the loop to prevent this from happening, or at least make sure that we bring some. Uh, um, some empathy uh, and human emotion into the decision-making process, right? Because the whole premise of predictive analytics is that all all decision-making is, is rational, that you can derive it from data. It isn't. We make our decisions also based on our emotions and our empathy and our understanding of the situation. And um, uh by bringing in more uh, uh, more of that in combination with the uh, with the kind of rationally generated uh, uh, result might be um, uh, might be a result, which is also part of the AI that they actually kind of say, okay, you need to maybe have a, a human human in the loop uh, before you uh, you make certain decisions. So that is. Uh, uh, one more thing, but it's it's a complicated problem, Edgar. Fully agree. Uh, yeah. How do we close the gap between reality and expectation, specifically on the subject of predictive analytics? Stop the hyping of uh, technology. That is one. <laughs> uh, again, a lot of a lot of what we're hearing and. Um, and a lot of the expectations are being set by people that uh, uh, that stand to gain from people believing it. A lot of it is marketing, right? ChatGPT is not um, intelligent. It's a prediction engine, like I said before. Um, a lot of the the the, the systems that we uh, that we um, uh, uh, that we run um, uh, are pretty straight, straightforward and can be explained. Some of them are more uh, more difficult and more black box, uh, and therefore it it, it, it it takes more time to uh, uh, to explain it. But I think and and my answer to a lot of problems is education. Um, so. Uh, education uh, of on all levels of the population, right? That people understand what the uh, uh, what has actually happened when they when they go on Facebook, and what the dangers are on on what's happening, and and we've seen it again and again and again, right? People getting into into information bubbles because of the algorithms that are running there, uh, or on 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 other other platforms. But it is also education on the limitations of uh, um, what 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 they what these uh, uh, these models can and cannot do. It is also education of the um, 
the, the business people, uh, both in, 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 um, in business schools, where I think that a lot of business schools are uh, lacking in really teaching people how analytics and data-driven decision-making works. Um, if you look at a lot of publica publications in, uh, in, in business science uh, between brackets, because I don't think it's re real science, um, um, it is um, storytelling where they find data to illustrate their point instead of having data and telling the, the story that comes out of the data, right? There's two types of storytelling. There's, uh, there's, there's uh, made up stories that you try to prove with uh, facts that fit the story. And then there is uh, facts that you found and you bring them together into a story, which is how scientific theories come together, right? Uh, so it's, it's not the data that fit the theory, it's the theory that fit the facts, the data. Um, and um, so I think that uh, um, just making people more aware and learning them more critical thinking skills in um, uh, uh, in schools, just overall, right? Making people more more critical in their in their in in okay, what what actually what actually constitutes a fact and what is kind of a uh, an opinion. Uh, how does how does it uh, work? How how can I actually determine if something is is fair? And the other thing is involve more uh, uh, involve more uh, um, uh, scientists and experts uh, in in the field to do evaluations and to. Um, to, to bring their point right you will never hear a good scientist say that he is certain that something is true he will always say okay no at the moment i believe this is true but it may change right theories change right? every model is wrong only uh, some of them are more useful than others and therefore we use the more useful ones but those models will change when we get new information look at what's happening with the, the james webb uh, space telescope now with the new new types of data that are coming in, and and the whole discussion is in cosmology about uh, about the models that we have of our universe at the moment. So be, we need to teach people to be less expecting deterministic. Okay, this is always true, right? And we need to uh, uh, need to get them to think a bit more to accept that a lot of what is happening is random and that that a lot of lot of it we just don't know yet so uh, don't expect uh, something to be uh, true or, or or to to be correct and said uh, don't expect some a model to be correct 100 percent of the time it has been observed that the need grows for literacy transparency and oversight in the context of data analytics. How do you think we can contribute on this regard? We need to, uh, we, we need to improve education on, on, on data-driven decision-making uh, and on the limitations of data-driven decision-making and on the limitations of human decision-making, right? Because human decision-making, we have all kinds of problems there as well. We have a limited 
capacity in our working memory. Therefore, the models that we can run in our mind are very limited. We have all kinds of biases. We have all kinds of heuristics and, and kind of shortcuts that we, we make. We have different ways that we approach certain problems, right? If you've read Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, then there's all kinds of limitations um, uh, of what we can do. There's a great book, The Outer Limits of Reasons, Reason, which is a, a great book um, uh, that kind of describes the limitations of what can we actually determine by logic and uh, and science and, and what can we do? And what are some limitations that we just basically know that we will never overcome? We know how to do it, but we won't be able to do it uh, because it's, it will take too long. It, it doesn't make it useful, right? Some things we can so we know how to solve, but it will just take a million years to um, to do it. Um, so the other thing is we need to, and, and we discussed this before, right? Is 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 really on the on the IPR, and the other thing is how can we actually make. Uh, a uh, how can we get a balance between being transparent about the models that we're using, uh, uh, and and while still protecting um, the, the, the 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 business IPR that is in the models, but I think it's also about uh, right one of the one of the big things the the, the, the chat gpt has promised to be as transparent as everything but they refuse to be transparent about how their model is being built and which sources they're using they, they still haven't put it right there so we need to be honest we need to, to force um, builders of, of 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 large language models but whatever also also other types of models to be transparent about okay what how have they been built a model it, it doesn't necessarily need to contain the information about what the model is, but how have they milled it? What kind of data sources have they done? And how have they, what have they done to prevent that it is biased? Or what are the limitations? And, and, and right, one, one of the, um, um, I worked with a small company or I didn't work with them. I, I, I uh, a discussion with them, it's called Skin Vision. It's a company that uh, you can use to, uh, take a picture of a spot on your skin and then it scores you, uh, uh, it gives you a risk uh, that you have, might have skin cancer. Uh, now it's, it's, it's a pretty good model, but they know it's limited, right? So they say, okay, no, if we have a high risk uh, uh, indication, it first goes to a dermatologist to review it, to see if, if, if he or she agrees with the, uh, with the model. And then based on that, it gives a, a, a recommendation. But they also randomly um, uh, um, select cases that are low risk so that they can keep reevaluating the model, whether there are not a lot of false negatives, right? So people that have skin cancer that aren't flagged by the model. So they keep, keep training and learning the model and they have a human in the loop. But they also know that they have one uh, a big drawback on, uh, and that is a drawback that's a problem also for dermatologists is that those spots on darker skins are very difficult to identify. So basically what they've built into the model and, the, and they've stated as well is if they see on the, on the model that it is a darker skin, 
it goes straight to the dermatologist. So they, they, they say, okay, we're not going to give you a score now. We'll have a dermatologist look at it. And then they, they contact that person and they say, well, we think it might be something. Maybe you should go to your own doctor, but we cannot see it from a picture. We need, we, you need to have. And that is a limitation of, uh, it, 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 it might be solved in the future if we have better, still even better cameras on our mobile phones. But at the moment, they really have identified, okay, this is a limitation that we have. Let's not claim that we can do do everything, right? Um, so they're they're really transparent about that, and and I think that is the way that companies need to go, uh, and basically say, okay, this is how we build our models, this is how we prevent bias, and these are problems that we still have with this model. The overall effect on the data and algorithmic categorization will be positive for some individuals, but will somehow be negative for the poor and the uneducated. Consequently, the digital divide and wealthy disparity will grow as well. How do you think we can address this particular circumstance? I'll get on my, uh, my hobby horse again, but I think we need to better fund education for, uh, for the less, less fortunate in, 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 in the world. I think that the fact that we in in most countries, the quality of education is linked to the uh, the wealth of the the parents, is an abomination. I think that every child in the world has the right to a high quality education. So um, that is that is one. Um, and uh, the other thing is that the reason that this is happening in a lot of cases is because we're building the the the, the algorithms that way right um, so if um, let, let, let me give you an example right um, the IRS in in the US and, and in most countries right the tax authorities they build models to identify who hasn't paid enough taxes right because they've defrauded them or they didn't, whatever reason, right? but they didn't pay the taxes that they should pay and they should pay more, right? Um, but you could also, pay, that's the model that we're building. And that is something that is uh, depending on all kinds of biases that you put in there is a model that is really kind of focused on and that's what we've seen from the from the numbers in the in the US, right? That is a, 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 a type of model that really hits the lower earning people in, in the US. But we've seen it in other countries as well. Um, why don't we build models to predict which people pay too much? Right? It's the other side. Can we build something? So for, for example, in in um uh, in 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 France, the best tax advisor you can go to is the tax authority, because by law, they are forced to make you pay the the, the tax that you need to pay, nothing more, nothing less, and they know the tax law the best. So, right, uh, so when they look at a, a a a tax return, they're not just looking at did they pay enough taxes? They also look at didn't they, did they pay too much? All right. 
so we want you may want to um uh we may want to think about okay if we're if we're um uh if we're looking for a um uh, if we're building a model to accomplish something what is the opposite effect and can we also use an opposite model um example right i could be a payday loan company and i might have a model that uh, predicts okay who this this person might might want a payday loan but then on the other hand, I could also predict, okay, but I want to take out the ones that will not repay it because they will become get in financial difficulties. So I might not want to offer it, right? Um, and and I've built a model in the past in, um, in social security where they were looking at a model of, okay, um, who is getting too much social security, but based on that model, they could also predict who is maybe not getting enough. So they were using that two-sided uh, type of approach where they say, okay, well, if we're going after people that get too much, we also need to help people that do not get enough get the extra. And it's the way of thinking about the problem. And most models that we're, uh, uh, that we're seeing at the moment are based on just one goal, right? Increase profit, increase, increase revenue, and not protect the weak, protect the other. Um, the, um, the other, uh, the other thing is, um, that because of that, that type of, uh, of models, it, it, it increases the larger divide. So, um, it, it, it's, it, it also, it, it is also increased because of the lack of resources, right? The, 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 just the, the number and, and, and the power of the computers, uh, the difference between uh, US certain Asian countries and Europe uh, compared to, to, to Africa and, and poorer countries in Asia and, and, and some poorer countries in Europe as well is enormous. Um, so um, they will, even if they had the knowledge and the capability to do it, they wouldn't have the resources to do it. So that that is that is another point. So in in, in, in again, I'll I'll come back to the European AI Act, right? They clearly distinguished between uh, large companies and small companies and startups that will need to comply with the same kind of regulations, and uh, and and part of it is that if we want small companies to uh, comply with these regulations we need to give them a platform that they can. So part of the law will be a, uh, a kind of, a, a, I think for every country, I can't remember, a kind of a national platform where uh, small, medium enterprises can do a lot of work without having extra expenses, but they can comply with the regulation. So uh, it's kind of, okay, yes, we want this regulation, but we can demand that of the... Um, small small medium enterprises so we need to help them to to be able to comply to that and therefore it will be funded by by the european union so that they can and and maybe we need to think about uh uh, uh doing similar things for uh for 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 startups and companies from in, in an international perspective for um for poorer countries or le less uh, Countries with 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 less access to infrastructure, 
uh, in some kind of way. And I know that some some uh, companies are doing that, but it might not be enough. And we we need to think about that. So yeah, it it is an issue, but it is also kind of okay. We need to change our mindset on what decision are we actually making. Having said all of this, uh, yeah, how do you foresee the future of predictive analytics and what should be our realistic expectation in this regard? I think that um, it will keep developing. New algorithms will will come up. Um, uh, We will have probably quantum computing in the future, which gives us uh, a lot more uh, uh, possibilities for different types of models. Uh, one of the one of the big problems, of course, at the moment with a lot of models is that they are very single level oriented, while a lot of problems are multi level. Right, an individual uh, is within a certain uh, social environment, a certain physical environment, which is managed by different types of uh, uh, of other things, it's it's like uh, um, y- you cannot model a school child without taking into account the uh, uh, the classroom they're in, uh, uh, the the school building that they're in, uh, and other things. Right when somebody goes out to buy something, you you need to have all kinds of envir- environmental factors uh, uh, f- uh, uh, inside. It's it's basically multi level modeling. Uh, so I expect that there will be more developments on that level to to kind of get out of the the single level approach. Um, the other thing is that we will get a refocusing, I think, on um, at the moment there's there's a lot of work being done in yeah what I call the the, the plumbing section. Right, in processing a lot of data, in trying to find all kinds of uh, feature extraction and, and other things, putting in as much data as as, as possible to uh, uh, to then put deep learning on top of it, and we don't know really what happening is happening, and we but we're using all kinds of uh, maybe spurious correlations or, or or other correlations to make predictions, and nobody knows uh, what's going on unless you go into the details, uh, which is in, in, if you have a really large deep learning model is uh, is a lifetime's work probably so you don't want to do that um so i think that we will need to get back to a uh, more business focused uh, idea of uh, of data preparation and feature selection and feature creation instead of just using mathematical technical uh, things without without a uh, uh, a theory. The other thing I think is uh, that is going to happen is that we're going to get a lot more uh, kind of cases where it went wrong, and we will learn from that. Right? We had several cases in the Netherlands. Uh, there's uh, where where the, where the government has used uh, um, predictive analytics uh, incorrectly or where where it led to to incorrect results, not necessarily that they used it incorrectly, but they they deployed it incorrectly. They didn't look at the limitations, or they just happened to have a good model that, in reality, uh, led to the wrong results, or, or 
um, uh, uh, unacceptable results. Uh, so um, I think that that is going to happen in the in the in the next couple of years. Is that uh, uh, a lot of people are going to find that it's it's not as easy as uh, marketing makes it, and and it it, it does require a different mindset, a different organization, and more focus on uh, transparency, like we discussed before, and ethics. So, Given your wealth of experience on this field, uh, yeah, any word of advice that you can give with regards to this subject matter? Um, I think that the, uh, I think the, the, the main parts are already there, right? Make it, a a multidisciplinary action. Make sure that you're aware of all the um, all the uncertainties and biases that are in in the whole process of building predictive analytic models. Um, uh, make sure that you have well, maybe maybe one 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 of the the key things, right? Is is people started calling this data science. Although I, I I don't think it's data science; it's it's more uh, engineering than science. But if you want to make want to approach it scientifically, is make sure that you have external reviews of your models, uh, not necessarily external as external to your company, but have a uh, a review uh, of your models by others that know what is uh, what is going on there, so that you. Um, that it is not just a small team that builds a model, but that that model actually needs to be accountable to another team that reviews it. And maybe use multiple models, uh, uh, use a champion challenger, right? Use kind of a, a competition to uh, in your in your organization to to uh, to build models to one get better models, but also to get different perspectives on what is in in what what you run up against uh, when you when you build a model and when you want to deploy the model. Um, but make it and 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 lastly, please, 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 as a uh, business executive, do not leave this to the IT director or the data director or the or don't deploy. It. Be involved yourself because what you're what we're talking about is the way that your company makes decisions in the field on a day to day basis. Uh, that will uh, run out of mind, and you, as as an executive, you cannot leave the responsibility of how you make decisions to a junior data scientist in an office somewhere in the, the middle of nowhere. Very well said. Are there any initiatives that you're currently preoccupied with that you would like to share with our podcast listening audience? And what are the easiest way of uh, reaching out or contacting you um the um uh, well one one of the things that i'm i'm, I'm working on now is uh, at, at the moment i'm in a, in a project for for the dutch government where they're building a uh, national algorithm registry to build more transparency for the dutch citizens and and the public on okay which uh, which models are in use, uh, where, and and for what kind of decisions? Which I think is something that uh, that every government should do, uh, but I also think that every business should do to actually have a registry of the the different models that they have running and 
what kind of um, uh, decisions are being made and how they are optimized, right? If if you uh, if you're um, let's if if you're trying to find um, uh, fraud, right? There's different choices that you can make to optimize a, a model that gives an indication of fraud risk. Again, a, a model doesn't prove fraud; it just gives a risk. So you still need to do work to actually say see if it's if it's fraudulent. But as a as an executive, you need to know. Okay, we have this fraud model, and it is optimized to find as much fraud, many fraud cases as possible. But you might want to change change that goal, right? You might want to say, okay, but I don't want to find as many fraud cases. I want want to find as mu much money as possible, which is a different type of model. Or you might say, no, I, I'm not interested in the small fraud cases, right? In a lot of insurance companies, the insurance fraud is just part of the, the cost of doing business and it's in, in, in the premiums, but they do want to find the large frauds. So, right, we want to change this. It's now in the it, it, it's now optimized for this. And as a management, we want to change it for something else. You cannot do that if you don't know where the, the which decisions are being made by what kind of algorithms. So I think that as a uh, uh, as an executive of a of a company, I would advise to build a uh, uh, a registry that kind of contains that information for you, so that you're on top of it. Uh, and then the other part that is very important is uh, the work that is being done at the moment by uh, by ISO uh, uh, and and. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm involved for, through the Dutch standards organization around the standards for um, for AI and predictive modeling and, and in the European uh, context that is also part of what is happening with the uh, European AI Act that will probably go to the parliament sometime next year and then become active in 2025 or 2026 so uh, kind of looking at um, uh kind of what are best practices in organizing it what are the things that you need to do i think that people should definitely look at at the iso uh standards the technical reports and and some other things that, because there's there's a lot of knowledge a lot of expertise being pulled in there from all over the world to uh, to make it happen so that's the nice part about iso you you kind of get people giving input from, from, from Asia, from Africa, from Europe, from US, uh, from so South America, um, and, and all those organizations come together there. And that gives a, a wealth of knowledge and experience that bring up those standards. So that is uh, that is really a good pointer. Um, where I can be reached, I can, uh, the easiest is on, uh, on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash Jaapvink. Um, but you can also reach me through my website, xenoanalytics.com, or uh, my email, jaap.vink at xenoanalytics.com. Well, thanks so much, Jaap, for sharing us your valuable insights on predictive analytics and its significant relevance to our digital economy. We wish you all the best on your future endeavors. Well, thanks, Edgar. It was uh, fun talking to you. Thank you, Bill.
podcast episode is made possible by Zeno Analytics. We would like to express our sincere gratitude to Mr. Yap Bing on sharing us his remarkable perspective on predictive analytics and its critical importance to our digital economy. We would like to hear from you. Share us your thoughts regarding our topics and send us a message on the Anchor Voice message box. Your message could end up on our future podcast episode. Make sure you never miss any episodes of FinCircle by clicking the subscribe button or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Amazon Music, Pocket Cast, Audible, Overcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Anchor.fm, and Affiliated Podcast Platform. You can also reach us on our website at fincircle.wordpress.com and our Facebook page at Fincircle Podcast. This concludes our podcast episode today. Thank you for listening on Fincircle. This is Ed Angelus. Let's catch up again soon.